0: The Youthscape no. Podcast. No. The, e-scape. the
1: e-scape Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Youthscape Podcast with me Martin Saunders
2: and with me Rachel Gardner.
1: And I'm going to start with a story.
2: Oh, that's unusual. And
1: I'm going to start with a story because I've, I've got. A, I am pregnant with a story. <laughs> it is. It is bursting. And this is from me, me like settling
2: down in well, my chair
1: because um, this story is wonderful, but also inevitably ends with a slight element of rudeness. Um, but uh, I was at church yesterday and we had the most wonderful service Uh, and I was sitting uh, next to a friend of mine who uh, I've known for a few years who's not a Christian and on my left my wife and we sat there during the sermon and it was a crackerjack sermon it was basically uh, the new, new vicar wonderful sermon on who Jesus is and explaining Jesus as King and it was ju- you just, you know, one of those things where every beat of it, I know what you're like, you'd have been humming mm. and ahhing, but, oh, yes. but normal people <laughs> in a nice, you know, Church of England church will sit there quietly and listen. And, um, and so I was just like, in my heart, I was like, it was just leaping all the way through. And I was just like, this is brilliant. This is what I believe. Absolutely. Aww. And the guy to my right, you could just see him kind of sh- sort of convulsing, like physically he was like, he was following it too. And I was, I was like, there's something wow. going on here. There's wow. something going on. Anyway, uh, the vicar turns around and he says, at the end, he says, look, I'm gonna ask someone, uh, anyone here who wants to do a really brave thing, if they would like to give their life to Jesus. And I'm like, wow, like we never do no, this. Like the- what, like this <gasps> isn't a conference. You're supposed uh, to do that at Spring Harvest please, or something. Yeah. This is the Church of England. Yeah, it's for
2: goodness sake. Um,
1: and you know, I left the vineyard for this. And so, <laughs> so I, um, so I'm standing there. Uh, I'm sitting there, yep. and, uh,
2: Convulsing in your chest. And, and
1: he starts to sort of do the, um, the explanation of what this means, and he does that speech, you know, that kind yeah. of, um, not manipulative, but the, the slightly rehearsed speech about, now in a moment, yes, I'm going to give you an opportunity to stand. Yeah, get ready. The guy to my right stands to his feet and says, I'm in.
2: Are you, ta- is this a true At the true top story? of his, that's happened yesterday,
1: I'm in, he said at the top of his voice, and i'm like whoa. what it's cuz i know this guy you know we 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 know this guy well like we're Did friends you say with him i was like what, what fooling on earth is happening there and he's standing there Same. and the vicar's getting quite emotional because he's like oh it actually worked oh, wow. and and this guy it's genuine it's a genuine repentance it was like he was oh, beating his chest he was awesome. absolutely convinced and converted yeah. Yeah. on the spot yeah. and we prayed for him. it was amazing anyway so my wife was like, stand with him, stand with him. And I'm like, I'm very British. Well on Joe. I'm well like, I'm Joe. I'm like, Joe, no. It's supposed to just be the, the no. guy who stands up. Just the guy. You never had and, Mike say And she's like she's like, stand with him. He'll feel supported. And I'm like, uh <laughs> oh, no, I'm like, no, I don't wanna I don't want, I don't I want to stand. See up. Is
2: this going? <laughs> you can't you can't see where it's going.
1: You can't see where it's going. Anyway, so um so, I'm gonna have to see if I can get through this. Um, so so she's like, fine. She stands up. Half the congregation like, what? <laughs> she leads our holiday club. There's
2: another one, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> she, leads, she leads our
1: holiday club. She can't become a Christian. <laughs> but she's standing to support him. Oh, and so she stands, and I'm now feeling like a bit of a plonker. Of so course so of course, I stand. <laughs> I stand up between them. Uh, and then, um, she's like, You need you need to support like let him know. Make him feel supported. Someone needs to hold his hand. And I'm like, I am not I am not holding his hand. Like, I'm not gonna do this. Okay? I'm not she's like, fine. So she reaches out across across. me. She reaches out across me and she (laughs) grabs his hand. Now now. he, he realizes what's happening. It's quite a tight like chairing spacing thing. She she reaches out a hand, he reaches out a hand. Have have a little think. Give them all about the same height. About what happens next and where both their hands meet. And in fact, both of their hands meet apart of me.
2: And the whole
0: what?
1: No, no. It was all very and and there was just there was just the the briefest of squeezes from both of them. And then they both realised what had happened, and dropped their hands in a in a way to say, "Let's never speak of this." So you know the angels are roaring with glo- you know, with with joy at, at, at what has happened. But also, I have in some way also Be violated. been violated. Welcome to the Youthscape podcast, where we each We're week.
2: Bible Talk
1: about youth ministry, <laughs> but not yet.
2: I love how you st- Honestly, makeup is rolling down my face. I can't, can't keep it in.
1: We've that got, is so
2: funny. We've got a fun interview oh.
1: today. We've got a fun interview today. Oh
2: my goodness. I can't take that. Oh gosh. Can you just can you just close the story? Yeah, fine. Your lovely friend. That's it. Is he alright? Oh,
1: he's fine. <laughs> no, he's he's now going to... So I think he's going to follow Jesus. It's amazing.
2: It's almost against the odds, isn't it? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh. So um, anyway, yes.
1: yes, great, great interview today.
2: We've got a great interview. So again, welcome any guests who are particularly choosing to tune in today because we have an astonishing guest. Most of our stories do involve nudity and some of Martin's body parts. That that does have to be said. And also, we have like like here because neither of us have eaten recently. We have the strangest little like. Puff pastry. I've got a
1: sad biscuit.
2: Sad biscuit that's not very nice. It's so Spanish. It's Spanish. Oh, oh, amazing, amazing. Dona so. Jimena, Almendrado,
1: Cochinete.
2: <laughs> so I think this interview actually—what is a segue into this interview? I guess. The segue into this interview is, it's such an incredible insight with Andrew into what it means to pastor this generation who are so post, 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 post post church, post Christian. Mm. Like this is a new paradigm they are entering. And so I think actually we need to be ready for more exciting, crazy, kind of what revival looks like when we're working with a generation where they haven't got a lot of the gum before. And let's welcome into the kingdom with clarity. But anyway, Martin, yeah, do you want yeah, yeah. to introduce? Well, our wonderful guest.
1: It's worth just saying. So, so uh, Andy Root is one of the world's leading thinkers yeah. on youth ministry. Uh, he's writing, or he's midway through a trilogy of books on the secular age. Um, and the first book was faith formation uh, in a secular age, and then this one is about the role of pastor in uh, the secular age. And uh, there's a third one coming. And uh, so these aren't primarily youth ministry books, but they're very applicable to youth ministry. We've already spoken to uh, Andy Root. Other podcasts have recently spoken to Andy Root. So we tried to go in some slightly new directions. And of course, the thing about Andy Root is he has a planet brain. You can ask him about anything and he'll just have the fascinating sweetest
2: voice. Can thoughts. we just say, like... Right. Even if you just want to like fall asleep to his voice, like, he's got the most beautiful voice, hasn't he? Don't you think? Sell it better than that. Well, not to fall asleep, you're, fall what you're asleep. saying It's amazing, but it's like, you know, there's some the voices that are just like. He's got a lovely voice. I could listen to his voice forever. I love like his voice. It's a lovely voice. Andy, you've got a lovely voice. Shall we get
1: into the serious? Let's get into the meats.
2: Academic.
1: You oh. know, interview,
2: and you did it, Martin. Oh well, Mister, I'm not very academic. Like, I asked, you asked some flipping brilliant questions. I asked the
1: questions. He gave ninety percent of the of the, of the it's other
2: beautiful. speech. It's right here we go. It's the Youthscape podcast.
1: Uh, well, I'm very excited that once again on the Youthscape podcast I have with me across the across the Atlantic Ocean uh, and via the the miracle of modern technology, uh, Andrew Root. Uh, is is with us again. So hi Andy.
0: Hey it's great to be with you.
1: And uh, you're here because you uh, last time we uh, uh, spoke uh, you just published volume one of your sort of Lord of the Rings uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> uh, books um, and, uh, and and that was Faith Formation in a Secular Age which I know a lot of our listeners will have um, read and devoured and loved um, and now you've come back with a a second volume which is called The Pastor in a secular age. Um, and I think from our last conversation, you know, we, we talked about how these aren't specifically youth ministry books, but very applicable to youth ministry.
0: Yeah? Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I, I mean, I hope at a, at a certain level, all of my work touches young people in the church and things like that. I mean, I've uh, um, tried to think through kind of issues with young people in mind. So this book, particularly, as you said, is, is directed more towards. Well, it's really directed towards anyone in ministry, but obviously uh, the kind of person, the ordained person, or the person kind of uh, in charge of the congregation. But I think it's applicable beyond that for sure.
1: And in the in the start of the book, you um, you you use the metaphor of the Terminator movies uh, as yeah. a, as a way of talking about the order in which you could read these. If if people haven't read Volume One, um, Faith Formation, can they skip to? volume two or what would your recommendations be about where people start
0: yeah well that's why i use the terminator analogy because i don't know what you think martin but for me terminator 2 is way better than terminator 1 and, and you really can watch terminator 1 without ever watching terminator 2 and so it helps a little bit to have watched terminator terminator uh the first original terminator but i, I think you can just jump in on this one i think for a fledgling author you just hope someone reads the book please God and that's kind of what you're thinking so wherever you need to jump into these uh, I think that you'll be fine
1: so can you give me uh, just a little flavor of what this book uh, is about and 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 just maybe set it in the context to the of the first volume as well if that's okay
0: yeah for sure I mean these this these books and there's a third one that's coming, coming after it are, are really a dialogue with the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor's work and particularly his, his thick brick of a book called a secular age. And so, um, this book does kind of take a similar form as book one, where there's an analysis kind of cultural analysis in the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is my theological response to it. So I think a, a legitimate maybe critique of these, of both, volume one and volume two or they feel each book feels almost like two books inside of it so it's uh you're you're really getting your money's worth
1: are you criticizing your own work again andy is that
0: Uh, you've got a long
1: a long history of doing that haven't you so are you now critiquing yourself
0: yeah i am definitely critiquing myself an embarrassment for sure um (laughs) but yeah i do i do have a way of entering into this conversation and and then uh, trying to answer it, and sometimes it feels like two different books. But this book, particularly, I'm looking at the identity of the pastor. And again, I think that's a pretty broad, um, when I say pastor, I mean pretty broadly, goes to the youth worker, goes to the children's minister, goes to obviously the pastor, the person maybe preaching every week or um, in charge of, of uh, the congregation, the vicar. Um, but it, uh, it's really looking at how that identity of the pastor has changed, and, and I, I kind of think that what late modernity does to us in the secular age that we're in is it makes the identity of the pastor uh, thin, or what I kind of call a pastoral malaise, where we're, we're kind of struck with what are we actually doing here, what, what's the point here, and is being a pastor really um, worth, to say it crassly, is it really worth my time when I could maybe be a community organizer, or I could get into politics, or I could... I could just start a movement. Um, what does it really mean to be a pastor uh, in this kind of secular age, where uh, church life gets kind of th- thinned out in some ways, but other really important uh, elements of what it meant to be a pastor in the past have kind of been have disappeared under under this changing secular age that we're in.
1: And and just define that a little bit for for those just who are who are listening who aren't maybe. Um, familiar with that term or might make assumptions about what you mean by a secular age. So, um, you know, I don't want you to dive too much into the detail of the book here, but just as a sort of a, an overview, what, what is it that defines the, the age that we're in?
0: No, that's a great question because I think all of us have a certain kind of feel of what it means when we say secular. And yet, then the more we talk about it, the more we have different understandings of what that means or we we see it. We could be talking to someone and think we're saying, oh, yeah, the the secular age is what we really have to face or secularism or um, the secular is what's really impacting our young people. And then the more we talk about it, we realize we're talking about very different things. And so this is where I'm kind of following Taylor, where he thinks what it means to live in a secular age is not that fewer and fewer people are going to church. I mean, that's obvious and that's happening. It's happening in the coasts um, in the United States, it's obviously happening all over the UK and been happening for many decades, but that's not what he thinks it really means to live in a secular age. What it really means to live in a secular age is that all beliefs become contested or the way he says it that I find really helpful is that all belief becomes fragilized. So belief in transcendence or a living God Uh, People still kind of, at least a a small minority of people still might hold on to that, becomes really fragile. It becomes easily, it it easily comes apart. And so the pastor, I think, has to live and do their ministry inside a secular time where all belief becomes fragilized. Mm. So it's fragile for the people in the pews, but it's also fragile for the pastor Um, the vicar herself as she tries to think about what do i believe is god really doing something when i preach is do the sacraments really bring the real presence of jesus christ like we live in a world where all those kind of realities become doubted or easily doubted and so that's what i mean by the secular is that belief itself becomes fragilized
1: because what we've experienced here in the uk i think um over the last maybe 30 years is there was a obviously we we were in what you might term a state of christendom And then there was a a very kind of a period where there was a kind of severe reaction to that, you know, that that anecdotally uh, people were quite negative about the idea that you might have a faith. And now I would say, um, you know, again, anecdotally, so you feel free to correct this with um, with research. But um, but 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 now I'd say people kind of say, oh, great. It's great that 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 works for you. I'm you know, I really like this sport or I really like, you know, uh, meditation or mindfulness or, you know, and you like religion. That's great. But there's no kind of recognition of anything beyond that, that kind of faith choice beyond the lifestyle choice. And so you're suddenly competing in a consumeristic culture uh, against other lifestyle choices rather than the idea that there's like God who sits above all lifestyle choices.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's really true. And, and um, Taylor does this thing that maybe takes us too far into the weeds here, but he does this kind of thing where he talks about secular one, two, and three. And and I, I talk about this in the first book, but he wants to talk about like what secular one is is when religion becomes private versus public, mm-hmm. and so there's a divide between the private and public. And then that secular two is just this idea that fewer people are going to church, and secular three is like I said that belief becomes fragilized, mm-hmm. and it's really interesting to. Th- think about in the U.S. in that perspective. Because in some ways you could say that the U.S. is the most secular country of all the Western countries, but only in a secular one framework and Mm -hmm. only in the sense of a strict divide between the public and the private. So we could never have any religion classes in school. We could never have any prayer in school. I mean, any ministry that even wants to get on campus has to be really clear to go after school hours and things like that, where compared to the U.K., you're you're still having religious education classes in, in schools and things like that. But what's really fascinating is because the U.S. is the most secular one country, it's the least secular two country. And in other words, more people tend to go to church. And a good example of this behind research is when sociologists uh, ask Americans or people in the U.K. or in continental Europe if they go to church. Like, how many times do you go to church on Sunday? And they ask him, and like, use Americans – Both will lie, both continental Europeans and people in the U.K. and in the U.S. will lie. But Americans lie in the affirmative that they lie that they go to church more than they do, where continental Europeans lie about going to church less than they do. So they may go two times a month, but they'll say they only go one, where Americans will only go once and they'll say they went three or four times, (laughs) uh, which which just shows you kind of the different framework here. But what I think is interesting for maybe your listeners and as we think about youth ministry is america because it's always been the least secular two country and because you needed to get people to continue to go to church because it's the most secular one in other words there's the biggest divide between the public and the private that you always need to have a crisis that there needs to be a crisis fewer people are going to church we got to get we got to get young people back to church we got to get them to come and that crisis in that kind of view that a, that a church can really gain more and more people and accrue resources has and for lack of a better term, become globalized. And especially in the youth ministry world, the resources that have kind of come out of an interpretation of the problem with young people as a secular two issues, we just got to get them back in the church. Mm. Uh, that's been kind of projected across the globe, but it's very different. I mean, I think that you could you could really make a, a strong argument that, um, that the UK is uh, – compared to America, not as much of a secular one country, there's more of a connection between public and private, but that has led it to be much more of a secular two context, which I think then the secular three reality becomes becomes quite different um, for, for us. So it's just interesting to think of kind of youth ministry resources through that, that vein.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think of the last uh, 10 or so years post post the sort of global recession, um, we've used the word crisis an awful lot in youth ministry, certainly in the UK, more so now in the US as well. Um, and, and there's this kind of crisis narrative that young people are deserting the churches. We've produced research here at Youthscape that, that sort of sounds the alarm because fewer and fewer churches are um, investing in young people. Would you want to um, urge a note of caution against some of that thinking?
0: I think I would a little bit. I mean, I guess what I would want to say is if there's a crisis, now I'm a, I'm a good Protestant, so, you know, as a Protestant, there's always a crisis. <laughs> you know, just, there's a crisis everywhere, all the time. I mean, you know, our, our whole theological system is built on, on the crisis of sin and the need yeah. for salvation yeah. and so forth. So it would be hard for me. From my own kind of being to extract crisis but I guess what I would want to say is if we're going to talk crisis let's talk crisis in the secular 3 frame the fragilization of belief and not crisis in a secular 2 frame which is just how can we get more kids to show up wow. um, I think the secular 2 reality if we really deal with this the, the secular 3 crisis that just some kind of imagination for how God encounters us concretely in our lives is really hard To make sense of for young people, even for their parents, if we can work on that issue um, and take on certain practices along that issue, I think the the secular two crisis will kind of take care of itself. Maybe I'm being naive a little bit, but I think Uh it will it it'll take care of itself. But so I I think we have a misdirected crisis. I I think the way I would I would frame that. I do I do think we have a certain crisis about. The fragilization of belief but i don't think the response to the fragilation of belief then is just to for instance get more information in kids heads i think it gives us a completely different disposition of being in the world that maybe doesn't look as much like hair on fire the church is going down but what kind of is a, a maybe a more i don't know kind of spiritual mystical kind of yearning for god to speak again to god's people and taking on um kind of practices and imaginations that that seek to hear god speak again so maybe it's just almost a different kind of way we we talk about it it's that we're in a time where it feels like god hasn't spoken and we need to hear god again Um, and that becomes our crisis not our crisis is well our institutions are losing resources and if we don't figure out ways to find ways to to build more resources and young people are resources and we need to keep them and the the church has no future unless we can find ways to stabilize our institutions by getting more young people to come. I think that's a bad crisis that leads us into further, moves us into practices that make the yearning for a living God who speaks, it it actually makes it worse. It actually makes it more opaque and um, we kind of lean ourselves into more, um, Imminent material natural answers to our crisis instead of looking for more kind of spiritual, um, transcendent uh, realities of, of, of God. Yeah, I
1: was I was gonna say that's that's very interesting because the um, uh, as you just touched on there at the end, you know, the, the the natural place that leads you to is uh, searching for numbers means inevitably developing a more kind of consumeristic model of youth ministry which is uh, driven around uh, entertainment and gathering as big a number as you can and then there is something that goes on there where you start to sacrifice uh, some of that deeper connection stuff in order to make sure they keep showing up and keep bringing their friends and so your uh, antidote to the crisis uh, because of the misdiagnosed crisis you've talked about is actually worsening the real crisis which is the poverty think, of the soul.
0: I think that's exactly right. And, and that's what I worry about American Kindness Ministry, that it's, it's been very shiny and provides some nice resources, but for the most part, it's been directed towards the wrong problem. And that's really made the real problem worse. You know, So um, it's like taking a, a drug to, to um, try to deal with one illness that's actually just giving you a, a huge tumor somewhere else. And um, that seems a really bleak, terrible way to say what it. What a beautiful but, you know, illustration. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful that just makes people feel feel great but um yeah I, I worry about that for sure wow
1: and so i guess the question is then what is the what is the advice we give to the uh youth pastor who feels some sense of crisis which is inevitably driven by the fact that there are only six young people in their youth group and their pastor is asking them to get more um you know bums on seats as we call them here um, and uh, I, that, that for you that's homeless people right but for here that's that's buttocks um, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but but um, you know what's our advice to to that that youth pastor in this age of, of misdiagnosed crisis?
0: Yeah I mean the first thing I, I would want to do is be compassionate and say I get that I mean I completely get the The desire to have more people there and and a lot of particularly youth workers have their funding because of this misdiagnosed um, assumption that if we can just have a youth worker we can up our numbers by 25 percent and then that that will that will solve our problem that our our church faces so i would never want to be flippant with that nor Mm. kind of say that it isn't an issue i mean we all have to hope that we can eat and um, i mean in my country it's a huge issue because we have to buy into healthcare. I mean, you got, um, and so I'm very aware that youth workers, we, we, our denominations lose another 10% of people and the large denominations with pastors and youth workers won't, won't be able to have a, a, a kind of a, a buying block to be able to get ch- cheap insurance. So this is all becomes real issues. So I, mm-hmm. I don't want to minimize those at all. I mean, this is, this is a big deal, but I, again, I think what moving forward if you have six, the first thing I would want to tell youth workers is that if you have six young people in your ministry, um, the first move is to, is to thank God for those six and mm-hmm. to recognize that those six are, are are a gift and that God is going to move and act with those six and, and to be preparing for that. I mean, I think it ultimately is this kind of disposition of, do you see your vocation as building a youth group, or whatever you might call it, or building building your youth program, or is the objective here to help young people encounter the living presence of God? And that may mean more young people show up and come. That may mean fewer come. And so the second half of the book is I, I really try to articulate a theological vision for the pastor, for anyone in ministry that that tries to argue that, um, or tries to, I guess, point out that this God of the Old Testament, particularly this God that, that we that's revealed to us in the Old Testament is a God who acts and moves. And this God is who comes into the world, comes into the world to minister to one another, to minister to us. So I'm, I'm kind of drawing from the American Lutheran theologian, Robert Jensen, who says, whoever God is, God is the one who frees Israel from Egypt and raises Jesus from the dead. And what he means is the only God we can know is the God who acts, the God who actually comes into the world and acts for us. And my contribution to that is to say, well, this God who comes and acts in the world, free, freeing Israel from Egypt, raising Jesus from the dead, and um, comes for the sake of ministry, to minister to us, so that this God is fundamentally a minister. And so what I'm trying to imagine here is that what we actually do in ministry has huge, huge ramifications. It's not just about building the church or upending decline, but to minister to those six young people is actually to participate directly in the very being of God, because God is a minister. So when we care for their humanity, when we hear their stories, when we stand with and for them, it's not just the right thing to do or a kind thing to do. It may be all those things, but even more so, it's direct participation in the acting being of God who comes to us as, um, as a minister. So I'm trying to play with this idea that ministry may be just the most powerful form of human action in the world. That ministry is the, maybe the only form of human action that actually participates in death and can bring life out of death. Um, and it, it connects us directly with, with who God is and how God acts. So I want that youth worker with those six kids to recognize that they are pulled deeply into the practice of ministry, and the practice of ministry has this profound theological reality to it, and to wait with those young people, to participate in the lives of those young people as we tell stories of where we see the presence and absence of God in our lives. So I think it's taking kind of that turn to to imagine those things and then helping our lead pastor or senior pastor whoever was over us kind of recognize that our point here with these six kids is to try to help them encounter the living presence of jesus christ more than it is to multiply the six to the 12 to the 24 to the so on and so forth and again it's not that multiplication is a bad thing i'm not opposed to that but it's trying to have a deeper i think theological vision maybe
1: um i uh i i host this podcast with rachel gardner who um, is listening to this now and crying? She's we. I can tell you right now, when she heard you affirming the ministry of, of the youth pastor there, she would have been openly weeping. So um, if I get that wrong, I will. I'll buy her a ke- I'll buy her a cake or something. Is that-, that a good thing? Oh, I think I think what you said weeping there. Is a bad
2: thing?
1: What you said there would be a wonderful <laughs> affirmation to many people listening. So so good. Um, the last yeah. thing, the last thing, Andy. I just wanted to dig into a bit was. Um, a conversation that you and i first had a few months ago in uh, the united states um i want to i want to i want to paint a scene for the listener um because i don't know if this is common uh in the place that we were but um we were in the most beautifully uh, kept town i've ever seen in my uh, life so princeton new jersey um and it is it's like um, not all of america is like that right it was like literally perfect everywhere is perfect it's...
0: Yeah, it has a little bit of like whatever whatever town in the Truman Show that uh, Truman was in, whatever they called that town, it has that kind of feel to it. Though.
1: Yeah, and then you were like, oh, let's just go around here to have our conversation. And we end up in like the only place in Princeton that is overgrown, like broken <laughs> down. And suddenly it was like I'd walked into, you know, like the first five minutes of a post-apocalyptic movie. where they're like this is princeton 30 years later and it was bizarre and we sat there and it was all overgrown we sat on two rusty chairs there was no refreshments i don't know how you found that is that was that was that deliberate andy
0: (laughs) it was it was not deliberate but you are right it did feel like zombies were going to come out of the overgrown bushes and uh and, and kill us. So, uh, yeah, uh, I apologize for that. No, I, I, fine. But I did want you to see the underbelly of Princeton, New Jersey. <laughs> the
1: only the un- The only the underbelly. The
0: underbelly, that's right.
1: And so, um, so then we had a little conversation about um, my favorite topic and a, a frequent topic on this um, uh, podcast, which is innovation. And I know that you may go into this a little bit in book three, maybe. Um, but I wondered whether we could just open up a little bit of that conversation. Again, because I, I raised innovation as the answer to all things, as I tend to do as a naive non-academic. Um, I also talk often about the crisis in youth ministry, so I'm going to have to rethink some stuff. But, um, but, but I talked about the innovation as the answer, and you were quite quick to just urge a note of caution. So what, just, what do you want to say of what you said to me that day?
0: Yeah. I mean, it would, it would be wrong for me to, to be opposed to innovation. I'm all for innovation. And, you know, especially when we think of, we all hope for innovation in cancer treatments and, um, and, you know, um, and, in gardening so that that back part of Princeton actually <laughs> looks beautiful. Yeah. They could use some innovation there. Um, for sure, so I I don't want this to be interpreted as being against innovation, but I am wondering about if we kind of put this against the backdrop of the conversation we had just earlier, that there is, I think, just a real huge temptation with us late modern people who feel kind of pressed or um, uh, just in, in a potential crisis, especially a crisis of numbers, to become obsessed with resources, and so that we think that what will solve our issue is resources. That why the church is in decline is because it just doesn't have enough resources. And like I said, I want to be really sensitive to that because I like being paid, I like having retirement, things like that. And so <laughs> resources, resources are important. Well, part of part of what I'm putting this against the backdrop of, and this will get a little bit nerdy, Martin. So you'll have to stop me as soon as as soon as it, it becomes boring. But uh, one of the one of the people that I, that volume three will be in dialogue with is um, someone who's been working off charles taylor's work which is this german social theorist named hartmont rosa and hartmont rosa has a really interesting book he's he's lectured quite a bit at the london school of economics and around the, around the uk at different places so people can find his youtube videos and his books but one of his most interesting books is this book called social acceleration or something like that the point is what modernity is is the continuing speeding up it's the speeding up of um, technology obviously it's the speeding up of social change but it's also the speeding up of, um, the pace of our, our daily lives. So you just continue to get this speeding up and it has the effect that it can lead us to feel deep forms of isolation from ourselves and from one another, and that things can just start going too fast for us to keep up with. But one of the strategies to deal with the acceleration of modernity, he thinks, is that innovation becomes uh, a really high good. It becomes something very good because innovation becomes a way of kind of meeting this acceleration. So I'm all for innovation, I just worry that sometimes if we're not, if we're not careful, it can also play into this, um, into this movement of continuing to speed up our lives that has the potential of kind of alienating us from ourselves and and from the world. So to to maybe make this, make it just a little bit more sense, I've had the experience lately in interviewing pastors for this this third volume and, and talking with them is that at least in the States, there's this very strange thing that's occurred is that every denomination, every religious kind of group knows that they need to change. I mean, the crisis is there. We all, we all know it, whether it's whether we see it as a secular two crisis or a secular three crisis, the crisis is there. And so it's time to change. And yet I'm having a lot of these uh, American pastors say that right when they feel like it's time to change and denominational officials are saying this too, right when it feels time to change, they're finding the congregations are almost overwhelmed with a sense of depression. That they feel depressed, like the change is here. You're you're available to change. The opportunity is there, and yet no one has the energy to change. Is that what if innovation doesn't have a deeper theological kind of imagination to it or vision to it, that it becomes a way that once we innovate, it is a way of speeding up or catching up to the change that's occurring, maybe in the culture or the change that's occurring in the neighborhood. But once that once you increase, then you need to continue to increase. And this is part of the problem with modernity is once you get to a faster speed, you have to continue to speed up. So this year's innovations means that next year or the next three years we have to innovate again and then we have to innovate again and then we have to innovate. you have to keep innovating. Like no one Steve Jobs never got done with the iPhone four and was like, That's it, we've we've done it. It's over. We don't need to worry about iPhones anymore, they're done. I mean, once you get to one innovation, you need to innovate again. And part of that's just the reality of human life and being a historical being that we always need to be improving things or changing things as we live in time, but there is a, a certain hidden other good which says that innovation will save us, but it has the potential of, the, of, of speeding us up in a way that may make that issue a secular three, the, the connection to something bigger, to something transcendent. It may actually take us away from that. And it makes the pastor or the youth worker, I think, potentially, again, I think it can be done in a, in a good way, could make the, the pastor or the youth worker um, more concerned for resources than for the encounter with the revelation of Jesus Christ, and those aren't, I don't think, necessarily either ors. But for particularly from American perspective, I worry that innovation becomes just another slick way of trying to accrue resources, and we think our salvation for the church as an institution, or maybe even individually, vocationally, will be in the accruing of resources as opposed to the encounter um, with the living God. So that's the, I don't know. That's that's the that's the. Um, that's the beginning of those thoughts.
1: And I, I think I broadly agree with you. Um, and I think the contexts are slightly different. Although in this country now, I've noticed the number of organisations that now have a head or director of innovation. I think some churches even have a head of innovation. And I, and I just wonder what they mean by that. And my, my, my sort of slightly um, cynical assumption is that a lot of people are looking for a magic bullet. That, That's right. That yeah. will that will be able to be found. That is the way of converting everybody to Christianity, and or or discipling people so that they don't lose their faith, or most importantly of all, have sex with anyone. And then <laughs> right. um, and then um, you know that that they can then roll that out across a whole community of people, or a whole denomination, or a whole group. And I um I think when we talk about innovation, or when I talk about innovation, what excites and interests me is more of the kind of process-based innovation thinking, that is what shapes uh, technological innovation, not the creation of necessarily products to sell, but more the kind of um, better thought through development work that goes on, which, which causes you to really listen to, research, um, think through the needs of the people that you're seeking to serve. And I think mm. that is a really helpful note. You know, I think that's the most helpful thing innovation can offer to the church at the moment is this um, is the, the very old spiritual discipline of listening. and yes. And of maybe, you know, trying and failing and learning from mistakes rather than trying to find a magic bullet that we can slickly roll out to a million people.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, th- I think it has, at least in the, in the North American context, become a kind of um, language game that, that is the thing that's supposed to be the, the, magic, the magic bullet that's supposed to save us. But I think you're right that, that there is this deep sense of what it means to be a human being that we've kind of lost here that we all have a, a kind of aim, and it's really important for us to be clear about what's the aim we're going for, the process of what, what is a good life, or, or kind of the moral horizon of what, what makes life good, and I think there, you're right, there is ways in the innovative process that we get to having those discussions, um, I guess to put it in nerdy philosophical language, that there is this kind of teleological kind of focus, this focus towards an aim, towards a horizon, mm. that I completely agree with, and I think can be very helpful, In innovation to to remind us of that and to help churches stop looking around at what they're missing and feeling sorry for themselves and start to ask big questions of like, what is good? What what is a full way of living and how do we move into that full way of living? I just think there's also at least in the kind of Silicon Valley innovation. Other goods that are that if we're not careful, um, we smuggle in um, like kind of this everything being an object that's a resource in that it yeah. could be a ma- magical process. So yeah. I'm not opposed to innovation. I just think it needs to go through like everything in the crib crypt- directed and given back to us. And I think innovation has some really inherent. Good things in it that 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 can happen within that, but we have to be careful because we so we feel so deeply in the crisis, and we feel the need that we have to go fast. Like if we don't get this figure out in the next six months, our ministry is over and the church is dead and puppies everywhere will die. Like we have <laughs> that we have this kind of crisis mentality that leads us to accelerate, I think, too quickly. Where if we can make our innovative process be slower and ask deeper questions and wonder in a more deep way what it means to live a human life and where God encounters us in it, it can do really, I think, it can orient us in a really beautiful way as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's something maybe the church has to give back to innovation uh, around being more person-focused and and what, I mean, you know, what even in in the um, corporate world you'd call customer-focused rather than being product-focused and, uh, you know, Steve Jobs was absolutely obsessed with creating the perfect piece of technology um whereas whereas maybe the church has something to say back to innovation about thinking about human need and the the deep stuff of, of like where your where your life is heading that's um yeah interesting that's that's right i think it's right yep interesting um so uh andy I, i'm really grateful for your time today um that that is the second of three interviews on the second of three books um that is uh, i've just i've just assumed there i'm going to speak to you a third time look at that um <laughs> But um, the book is called The Pastor in a Secular Age. Uh, it's very, um, I wouldn't say easy reading, but although it's a, a, a really intelligent and academic book, it, it, it is, um, it's very accessible. Um, you may have got that from the, the movie references and things, but you, know, you talk about dogs and all sorts of stuff in here that, that, that people can just relate to that doesn't necessarily feel like a dusty tome. Um, and I think it's always your style, isn't it?
0: Yeah, there's probably too there's probably too many pop culture references in it so um yeah somebody can play like a, a checklist game of how many how many hbo shows i've referenced in throughout the book so uh yeah you, you'll, you'll get connections that way for sure that's great
1: and uh, it's published by baker academic you will find it in all the usual places thank you andy for your time really great speech as always
0: yep thank you look forward to talking again cheers It's the Youth's Game Podcast.
2: That is a great interview. And he really agitates a few of the things that I would say sometimes are our bread and butter go to. Like we talk about the crisis narrative and he slightly blows that out of the water or at least brings a new perspective. I'll ask you about that in a minute. He, he's styled around innovation, Martin, all my days. That's yeah. really interesting about the role of prophetic imagination. But can can we zone in on the crisis narrative? I, yeah. I think that was so strong. So, because when I was listening to it, here's my thought, I, I wanna hear what mm. you think. I was thinking, I I, I, I I totally agree with him and he, he knows way more, I, I totally agree, but there's a sense in which we do still need to grieve the fact that, there are less young people connecting with church? Because actually, that hasn't happened because of outside factors that is because actually so many of our churches we've just lost the ability to to know who we are and what it is that we're inviting people into and that we need to grieve that like Mm. that should break our hearts that that the Greta Thunbergs of this world and whatever are are doing this without without God without the church that kind of um outside of this but but what, what did you take away as mm. the as the new crisis mm. or the new narrative from what Andrew was saying?
1: Yeah, I th- well I, I think um, it, he's not saying that, um, that that isn't bad news. He isn't saying uh, it, it's good news that young people are leaving the church. Of course the statistics are sad, but I think he's saying we misdiagnose mm. the crisis. And we think that the answer is to get more, more bums back on mm-hmm. seats by yeah. running more big events <laughs> yeah. by you know and he's saying no we need to do deeper work mm-hmm. and the thing I took um, the really challenging thing in it was the call to go deeper mm-hmm. which is an easy thing to say we, we say we throw it around ourselves we all have it as head knowledge that mm-hmm. we need to go deeper with God ourselves we need to go deeper with young people but actually that I mean, I, were were you in tears? I yeah, wondered. Yeah, yes, I was. Yeah, yeah I thought you would be. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because yeah, the um, you know, the profound stuff around, like, where else can you actually yeah. join in with the work of? Yeah, like you were just like, oh my
2: goodness, and like, they're commonly made about the, a ministry is the deepest and the greatest form of human action. Yeah, I just thought, oh my days, yeah. that's like that. That was a bomb that went off in my yeah. head.
1: Yeah, and so was. so actually, he reframes the role of yeah. youth pastor yeah. so yeah. often in our in our church. One of the crises we do see is that the relegation of youth ministry to this kind of like mm. it's just. It's just below the flower arranging rota yeah. in terms of importance, whereas he's saying, no, you are pastoring yes. young, precious young people. And if you're working with five or six, you are doing divine work. And he's re-establishing it right at the top of the tree in terms of mm-hmm. what's important in churches, which makes him a friend of this podcast,
2: of uh, course. Absolutely, but I think,
1: I think yeah. actually the crisis is, um, we maybe we, we devalue some of what is most valuable. Mm. The one-to-one work, the small group work, the you know the um, maybe leaving a large group to pastor one or two to a greater depth mm. um, and uh, and you know there's some biblical precedent for that as well. Mm-hmm.
2: So I, I think it was a real encouragement as well to to be practitioners who are super safe for young people in that one-to-one, or that small group setting where we're, we're so we're so aware of, the, of all the needs that young people have, and what they bring, and and how they can be easily manipulated. We want to be you know really wise to that, but also. At at the beating heart of this is the, is the life changing encounter with Jesus that we want to be so bold and audacious with mm. um, and what does that look like when you haven't got the lights and the buzz mm. and all the stuff around you propping that up, what does that look like just sat in the church graveyard with a young person you think, well no, right here right now, the spirit wants to encounter this young person and the, and the spirit knows what they need mm. like comfort and love, that comfort and joy. I was listening to um a great uh, Father Greg Boyle speaking recently and he was talking about what you know, when we're ministering to young people, we, we are bringers of comfort and joy. And I I was like, oh yeah, that's mm. that's that's awesome, isn't it? That mm. in this space we don't need all the trappings of the rest to be a voice of comfort and joy. So what because I think we do I think one of the things that we are good at in the UK, I think, because we are not a country full of mega churches and mega youth groups. I think we're very good at elevating the small. I, th- mm, I, I would mm, say that mm. we we're good at saying, "Yeah, I've got five or six but um, but that doesn't automatically mean that having a small group means you're automatically going to have deep encounter. No, absolutely. So I think we've got to kind of challenge ourselves a bit more. That we've, yeah, we've got yeah, we're not like America in that they just want the mm, big. Like, mm. But we have to be really careful that we don't just say small automatically mm. is deep. So what some are practices that that, that, I, that You think we actually do need to lean into a little bit more? Well, hang
1: on. Because I oh, think this is a rare case oh, where we disagree. Oh. Because I th- I think we are... Some of us are yeah. quite good at elevating the small. Mm. But I think um, often uh, that's because things are small. And As actually a, oh, what okay. we'd love is... We'd love oh, a see. bigger youth group I so that see. we could be okay. the ones who've got a growing youth group. Oh, I so see. So I, I think, you know... If, if, if you've ever, I've been the person with six in my youth group, for sure. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, but I, I would have, I yearned for the days mm-hmm. when I might have 30 or 50 mm-hmm. or 100. And, and probably on some level, that was so that I could kind of feel like I was doing a good job and that mm-hmm. others would look at me and say, wow, he's got a big youth group. Mm-hmm. So I think we do, we prize it and we value it. It's just that because many of us don't have it, we have to sort of say, oh, oh no, the small is great. Um, which leads to what you're saying, which is that um, we have uh, the, the context for great youth work without automatically necessarily yeah. having the sort of youth work that, that Andy is is talking about. So what does it look like to go deep with a group of young people? Well, um, probably it's about digging into, um, you know, with a group of that size, you can, you can do accountability really well, you can do prayer really well, you can do spiritual disciplines really well. You can get into the Bible together, you have great discussions, you can have a regularity of meeting. There's, there's lots of sort of kind of rhythms that you can you, you mm. can draw together a nucleus to really commit to. Mm. Especially when you've only got your eye on five or six young people, you can check in with those young people as a youth worker, like mm. very regular, probably too regularly. Mm. You know, you probably t- start to, uh, to cramp their style a little bit in some cases. Yeah. Um, so I think um, we do need to be intentional,
2: um, mm.
1: just because we've got a small youth group that doesn't automatically mean Andy Root says we're doing a great job. Yes, yes. I think we also need to be intentional about, you know, pastoring.
2: Because yes. one of the comments he talks about is, is it Secular 3 where he says it's fragile belief and mm. fragilised... not heard that before. Yeah, Fragilised yeah, yeah. belief. So there, there surely is still a very vibrant place for the big plausibility shelter type stuff where mm. you have mm. the big apologetic of 30,000 young people yep. at the festival who... Yep. So, because I, I think there's many ways to kind of respond to the, the fragile belief nature. I think it's so empowering for young people to see that this fledgling faith that they're daring to begin to believe mm. might actually have mm. something to say about politics and environment mm. and sexuality mm. is, is not just me and a couple of others, but that there's a wider plausibility about mm. this. Mm. Um, so I get it. I, I came away from it thinking it is about being a lot more intentional about what it is that, that can only happen in this space. And making sure that what can only happen in this space happens in this space, because mm. um, we still leave a lot of that to the big events, don't mm. we? We still say, mm. you know, it used to be Soul survivor. That's where the deep encounter, the growth happens. Whereas, now actually, that, that sends its backwards. But incredible! Can we get him across to the UK at some point? And that
1: is the plan. We need
2: him live in front of us. There with is a beautiful voice.
1: There's a plan underway, but I can't say any more just yet.
2: And speaking of what you can't talk about anymore, come <gasps> Can't
1: believe what you're about weekend.
2: to do? We've got an early day, of the National Youth Ministry weekend. Yes, we have. Yeah. so Tell us about that.
1: Yes. Yeah, so Pete problem. Greg, uh, is uh, is coming man, to? Isn't? He is a deep man. He's coming to lead our early day, um, which is entitled "How to Pray," uh, oh, which I think cool. is the name of his new book.
2: Yeah, it's, well. a, it's a very good new book,
1: and uh, so he's going to be leading a—I wouldn't say small group, but also you know, me, let's say a medium-sized yeah, group yeah. of people. Yeah. Um, and uh, there'll be a bit of input for you, and also a bit of thinking about how you lead young people in their prayer yes. as well. Um, but uh, that is a fascinating opportunity to sit with, yes. you know, one of the best communicators and thinkers yes, on prayer, yes, yeah. in the world <laughs> yes. um, at uh, at the early day for National Youth Ministry that weekend. So you can still get tickets for that at the moment. Yes. Uh, Youthscape.co.uk slash N-Y-M-W. You can probably get to it from yeah. the main N-Y-M-W And also, M-Y-M-W I have code. a pet
2: creed. Wait, when you say slash a, like, pet creed. a pet creed. A pet creed.
1: A pet creed.
2: A pet creed. A pet. Creed. A pet grief? Like, I haven't got any pets. A pet peeve.
1: Thank pet goodness. Pet peeve. Thank goodness there, you people. got there
2: pet peeve have you heard on other podcasts when people say the word slash they don't say slash they say slush have you heard like have you been listening to
1: very posh podcasts no
2: but it just really annoys me like forward slash you're like no it's forward slash how you'd normally say that is is the pettiest (laughs) grievance I've ever heard it annoys me no end anyway we have got a new season of shout out shout out Kind of with about now. to happen. We've got some news, and, and I'm going to be deeply awkward for the next few weeks yes. because. Do you want to give the backstory to these? Shows okay, now? so
1: um, the other day I was contacted in my capacity as a youth worker by the Reigate Deanery Children and Youth Organiser, uh, champion, I think.
2: Oh, wow, champion
1: like the Wonder Horse. Awesome. Um, and uh, her name at the bottom of her email was Rachel. Wow, Rachel. Gardner. what and I was like hang on a no. minute this doesn't make any sense she's in Preston now how <laughs> can yeah. she also be in uh, Rygate deanery but it turns out there is a youth specialist in in my local area called Rachel Gardner oh, awesome. so hello to Rachel Gardner
2: and then Martin told me this story and the next day I had a little instant message from a young person that I used to mentor when, when I was at St Peter's Church and um, saying look I'm with my, my new youth worker I'm doing swap the oh, Youthscape yeah, resource yeah. and she sent me a photo and then she said oh and by the way the person running the Christian Union in my high school is called Rachel Gardner. Wow. So there we go. So
1: hello to Rachel Gardner. In North
2: London High School.
1: So do if you know, know it if you know any other Rachel Gardners <laughs> do let us know Podcast at youthscape.co.uk I hope there's a
2: manga character because if you I have this is so bad. What have you been
1: googling yourself?
2: <laughs> no <laughs> Rachel. Can I googled myself. Oh, oh don't edit this out whatever me. you do. Please don't judge me. And loads of Manga characters came up. So there must be a Rachel regard and a kind of little kind of
1: Why did you Google
2: character. yourself? I, d- I, I just I wanted to know. Anyway, I Googled Andrew Roots and then I Googled myself. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> You're like, how anything. many pictures of me are there? I on didn't it. really, I didn't really. Anyway, oh, thus ended a, a mighty, a mighty groping, oversharing podcast, which in the middle had absolute gold. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you, all of you. We love you very, very much. Until next time. Uh,
0: yeah, we, we we can talk about it. That's fine. I mean, my, my issue, it's not that I'm trying to be, uh, I don't know. Uh, Just keep it clean, man. Okay. I will.